Chapter Six of The First Men in the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The First Men in the Moon by H. G. Wells. Chapter Six: The Landing on the Moon. I remember how one day Cavour suddenly opened six of our shutters and blinded me so that I cried aloud at him. The whole area was moon, a stupendous scimitar of white dawn with its edge hacked out by notches of darkness, the crescent shore of an ebbing tide of darkness, out of which peaks and pinnacles came glittering into the blaze of the sun. I take it the reader has seen pictures or photographs of the moon and that I need not describe the broader features of that landscape, those spacious ring-like ranges, vaster than any terrestrial mountains, their summits shining in the day, their shadows harsh and deep, the grey disordered plains, the ridges, hills, and craterlets, all passing at last from a blazing illumination into a common mystery of black. Athwart this world we were flying scarcely a hundred miles above its crests and pinnacles, and now we could see, what no eye on earth will ever see, that under the blaze of the day the harsh outlines of the rocks and ravines of the plains and crater-floor grew grey and indistinct under a thickening haze, that the white of their lit surfaces broke into lumps and patches, and broke again, and shrank and vanished and that here and there strange tints of brown and olive grew and spread. But little time we had for watching then, for now we had come to the real danger of our journey. We had to drop ever closer to the moon as we spun about it, to slacken our pace and watch our chance, until at last we could dare to drop upon its surface. For Cavour that was a time of intense exertion. For me, it was an anxious inactivity. I seemed perpetually to be getting out of his way. He leaped about the sphere from point to point with an agility that would have been impossible on earth. He was perpetually opening and closing the Cavorite windows, making calculations, consulting his chronometer by means of the glow-lamp during those last eventful hours. For a long time we had all our windows closed and hung silently in darkness, hurling through space. Then he was feeling for the shutter-studs, and suddenly four windows were open. I staggered and covered my eyes, drenched and scorched and blinded by the unaccustomed splendor of the sun beneath my feet. Then again the shutters snapped, leaving my brain spinning in a darkness that pressed against the eyes, and after that I floated in another vast black silence. Then Cavour switched on the electric light, and told me he proposed to bind all our luggage together with the blankets about it, against the concussion of our descent. We did this with our windows closed, because in that way our goods arranged themselves naturally at the centre of the sphere. That, too, was a strange business, we two men floating loose in that spherical space, and packing and pulling ropes. Imagine it if you can no up nor down, and every effort resulting in unexpected movements. Now I would be pressed against the glass with the full force of Cavour's thrust, 
Now I would be kicking helplessly in a void. Now the star of the electric light would be overhead, now underfoot. Now Cavor's feet would float up before my eyes, and now we would be crossways to each other. But at last our goods were safely bound together in a big soft bale, all except two blankets with head-holes that we were to wrap about ourselves. Then for a flash Cavor opened a window moonward, and we saw that we were dropping towards a huge central crater with a number of minor craters grouped in a sort of cross about it. And then again Cavor flung our little sphere open to the scorching, blinding sun. I think he was using the sun's attraction as a break. "'Cover yourself with a blanket!' he cried, thrusting himself from me, and for a moment I did not understand." Then I hauled the blanket from beneath my feet and got it about me and over my head and eyes. Abruptly he closed the shutters again, snapped one open again, and closed it. Then suddenly began snapping them all open, each safely into its steel roller. There came a jar, and then we were rolling over and over, bumping against the glass and against the big bale of our luggage, and clutching at each other and outside some white substance splashed as if we were rolling down a slope of snow. Over, clutch, bump, clutch, bump, over, came a thud, and I was half buried under the bale of our possessions, and for a space everything was still. Then I could hear Cavour puffing and grunting, and the snapping of a shutter in its sash. I made an effort, thrust back our blanket-wrapped luggage, and emerged from beneath it. Our open windows were just visible as a deeper black set with stars. We were still alive, and we were lying in the darkness of the shadow of the wall of the great crater into which we had fallen. We sat getting our breath again, and feeling the bruises on our limbs. I don't think either of us had had a very clear expectation of such rough handling as we had received. I struggled painfully to my feet. And now, said I, to look at the landscape of the moon. But it's tremendously dark, Cavour. The glass was dewy, and as I spoke I wiped at it with my blanket. We're half an hour or so beyond the day, he said. We must wait. It was impossible to distinguish anything. We might have been in a sphere of steel for all that we could see. My rubbing with the blanket simply smeared the glass, and as fast as I wiped it, it became opaque again with freshly condensed moisture mixed with an increasing quantity of blanket hairs. Of course I ought not to have used the blanket. In my efforts to clear the glass I slipped upon the damp surface, and hurt my shin against one of the oxygen cylinders that protruded from our bale. The thing was exasperating. It was absurd. Here we were just arrived upon the moon, amidst we knew not what wonders, and all we could see was the grey and streaming wall of the bubble in which we had come. "'Confound it!' I said. "'But at this rate we might have stopped at home.' And I squatted on the bale and shivered, and drew my blanket closer about me. Abruptly the moisture turned to spangles and fronds of frost. "'Can you reach the electric heater?' said Cavour. "'Yes, that black knob, or we shall freeze.' I did not wait to be told twice. 
"'And now,' said I, "'what are we to do?' "'Wait,' he said. "'Wait?' "'Of course. We shall have to wait until our air gets warm again, and then this glass will clear. We can't do anything till then. It's night here yet. We must wait for the day to overtake us. Meanwhile, don't you feel hungry?' For a space I did not answer him, but sat fretting. I turned reluctantly from the smeared puzzle of the glass and stared at his face. "'Yes,' I said. I am hungry. I feel somehow enormously disappointed. I had expected—I don't know what I had expected, but not this. I summoned my philosophy, and rearranging my blanket about me, sat down on the bale again, and began my first meal on the moon. I don't think I finished it. I forget. Presently, first in patches, then running rapidly together into wider spaces, came the clearing of the glass, came the drawing of the misty veil that hid the moon-world from our eyes. We peered out upon the landscape of the moon. End of chapter.